Ladies and gentlemen, we are back on the Chili Dip Podcast. Today, we are joined by Chris Solly Solomon of No Laying Up. Chris, along with the rest of the No Laying Up crew, has set the benchmark for golf podcasting and media content, and their empire continues to keep growing. So, Solly, you're typically the one who's conducting the interviews. How does it feel to be on the other side of the mic? I look forward to this so much more than actually doing an interview. It's so much easier. Uh, absolutely no prep. All the pressure is on you guys. I'm going to make it super hard on you just to put you through kind of what I got to go through on a daily basis. So wow. welcome to welcome to my <laughs> terror dome here. So Solly, this is actually like my first time conducting the interview. Like as the main host, I'm typically, I'm typically the second to, to Chris, who's MIA today. He's playing a tournament out in Arizona. And I've got to tell you, it's nerve wracking. <laughs> it's not. It, it is and it's not. Just like I, what's funny is people will say like, oh, your interviews have gotten so much better, you know, than they used to be. I was like, you know what? When we started out, I didn't really think I didn't look at it as an interview. And I, listening back to it, like I, I do a really awful job of asking questions. I just was like kind of viewed it as, you know, if you were talking to especially with like the tour pros, if you were in a room talking with a tour pro, what would it sound like more than it sounds like an interview? And I kind of learned that, you know, like if you want to really get good stuff out of people, you need to interview, you need to ask questions, you need to be probing, you need to be specific. And, uh, but it's, it's it, look at, looking back, it was like, yeah, I had no idea what I was doing. I still don't really have any idea what I'm doing, but it, it was definitely a, uh, I don't know what the, when the realization was that it's like, no, you, you're an interviewer. But ever since then, I kind of view it a little differently. Yeah, yeah, you guys are you're doing something right because all of your interviews, you know, you get into the nitty gritty. You make the players seem so relatable and like such normal people, which they are. But you know, in normal media, that's pretty tough to do. They give so many like cliche answers, and and with you guys, you know, it's a testament to what you're doing. You guys get you know the nitty gritty, and you get good stories out of them. So, you know, props to you. There's a little formula to it. Um... I don't even know if you want to call it a formula, but it's, it's, you want to establish, I don't know what the word is, but just a rapport with the, with the player. You want to lure them in a bit and have them trust you a bit. So, you know, sometimes people will get on me like, Hey, just get to the point with your question. Like you talk too much <laughs> in between. It's like, well, you know, sometimes like you want the person to know who they're talking to, what I'm talking about, what I'm trying to get at. It's pretty easy to sit here and say, like, hey, tell me about your golf background, which is obviously a question I ask a lot. But like, that's very easy. But if I'm say, if I know something about somebody's background and I can kind of intimate, like, hey, your parents said you were a prodigy when you were seven years old. Was did golf really come that easily to you, or did you really put in the work? That's different than saying, like, hey, tell me about your golf background, and then they are more engaged, and it kind of brings you in. It's just something I've learned that guys don't get they get nervous when they do a press conference. Nervous might not be the right word, but they're apprehensive because the, the people in that room pretty much know what they're going to write. They're asking questions in relation to what they're trying to write. And you got to be careful that your quote's not going to be taken out of context. But if you're doing a podcast, everyone's going to hear the tone in your voice. They're going to hear the context of what you're talking about. They're going to hear you. If you want to explain something for three minutes, they're not as worried that it's going to end up a headline. So it's a, it's a much more advantageous, you know, scenario to be able to sit and get 45 minutes to an hour with a player. Um, and it's something that I don't really think existed in golf before we started doing it, which, you know, I, I, I kind of looked around like saying, how does this not happen? How do people not a lot of people with a lot better access than some dude that just living on the other side of the world that met a few golfers through Twitter 
how does this not exist? Like the golf world just kind of missed the boat on golf podcasts and we were just there right place, right time. And uh, we're able to take advantage of it. Yeah. So luckily we've actually done a few interviews now to where we know how to, to be comfortable with the per with the person that we're interviewing, you know, we have like a framework of what we want to say, but it's much more of like a loose structure. And then it seems so much more conversational and that way we feel better. And I think the person on the other side of the mic feels better. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, it's, you can get, you know, I'll type out two, three pages of notes slash questions and things I know I want to talk to a player about, but I do my absolute best not to read off that. That is there for when I have the panic moment of like, Oh shit, what do I say next? Like, where do I go next? But I got to listen to what they're saying. I got to react to what they're saying. I got to ask follow. If they say like, you know, whatever, I've never been so nervous in my life on the first shot. And then on the second hole, like, no, no, let's go back to that first hole. Like, what did you do? Like, what happened with that yeah. shot? If you, you know, are not paying close enough attention, it's super, it's, it sounds like very basic, but like, it's super easy to forget to listen because you're trying to plan ahead. You're trying to think of the next place you want to go. And that, I mean, open, lift the curtain a little bit too. Like, I'm not shy about telling players like, hey, give me 10 seconds right now to figure out where I want to go next. That all gets lifted out in an edit. But like, I don't want to rush getting into the next point. I want to kind of take toll of where we are in the interview, what we need to get through, how many minutes we have left, all that. So uh, that's something that I'm not really, not really shy about doing if I need to. It's so it's tricky to actually like do the follow-ups, especially because Sean, myself and Chris, we're all doing this remote. Unlike you guys in LLU where you guys are in the kill house or you guys are all in the same room, whether you guys are traveling or not, like we have like a text chain going on all at the same time. And, you know, we're like making subtle eye contact and like weird arm movements where it's like, I got this, I got this, I got a follow up. And it's, and it's such a clusterfuck sometimes, but somehow it works so smoothly at the same time. That's why we almost never do like joint interviews in, in different locations. Like, you know, we kind of did joint interviews for a while and kind of so what we'll do is it, it will kind of crowdsource before i go on right what do you want me to ask this person about what do you want to make sure we get in and having just one person kind of guide it is a lot lot easier right when i have somebody else in the interview room with me it makes my job twice as hard because i got to figure out when to let the other guy in and when to come in and if the other guy is following you know a rabbit hole that is not in my plans to go down like it makes it difficult, but sometimes it's also like if we all know a guy and we have done a podcast with them before and we've done the background, we've gotten through all that we need to, I know that we need to get through. Sometimes it's good to just like have somebody in person in the house or whatever, just chop it up. Like let's let it go anywhere it wants to go. Uh, especially when somebody's coming back for a return visit. I, I prefer that style. Um, you know, sometimes it's not the most exciting just to hear, you know, insert PJ tour player, answer a bunch of questions. Like sometimes it's not, but if you get multiple people in the room, you can kind of rag on each other a little bit, get a vibe going. Uh, it makes a difference. But yeah, the COVID kind of threw a little curveball in that. Cause we've done like two in-person podcasts in the last, I don't even know how many months it's been mostly interviews over, over the interwebs like this and just pray the technology works. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you kind of spoke on it, you know, the most commonly asked, asked question in interviews is what's your background in the game of golf? And you ask that question all the time to the guys you have on the podcast, but I feel like we haven't really gotten to know your background, you know, pre NLU. Uh, and we know you went to Miami, Ohio, and that's where you met all the guys, but we kind of wanted to know what your upbringing and introduction to golf was like, and then how that relationship evolved into being a life surrounded by golf pretty much. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's not a uh, it's not a particularly exciting story, but you know, my dad and I first played like a par three course in Myrtle Beach when I was eight years old. It was the first time I ever played a golf course, and I think I was pretty hooked on it from the very beginning. I remember I had a set of clubs that was only the odd irons that I had. So I had a nine, seven, five, and I think a three for some reason, which I had no business in hitting. Uh, <laughs> some of my dad's old like chopped down putters. Like I was big into the bubble shafts back in the day, the tailor-made bubble shafts. You guys might be too young to even know what those guys know yeah, those are. Honestly, I remember those. Okay. Um, and so I played, you know, horribly on the high school, uh, the middle school team. I think I averaged about 45 or something for nine holes. Started to get a little bit more serious um, entering into high school, but I also played basketball and baseball growing up. So I never was never one of the, the year round guys. Golf was my summer sport, rolled right into the fall. But, you know, even by the end of golf season, I'm into basketball conditioning. Basketball is my number one sport uh, kind of growing up. And, you know, it was, I had such a good high school team. I mean, the top two guys on our team went and played Division One, and I was the number three player. So, like, I kind of thought I was not good like I because I had two guys on my team better than me I couldn't keep up with them and I was pro looking back I was probably a really good number three player but I just never like allowed myself to to think that just because I was getting beat every, almost every single time by the two guys ahead of me and um you know played through high school we were easily the best team in the state we absolutely choked at the state finals and we got runner-up like it, we could have could not have played worse I shot like 88 81 I pretty much cost us the state championship um and like, yeah, it took me a long time to get over that. Still not quite fully over that, I think, if I'm being honest. But uh, And then, you know, college, the game kind of left me for a little while. Didn't have a chance to play much. Kind of started pursuing some other things. And then uh, got into uh, – I started working for KPMG in Chicago, which, you know, Chicago – it's a great golf city, but when you're broke and you live in the city, it's not great. Um, yeah. It's hard to justify, like, going out and spending the money playing the golf and – I don't even know how many times I played my first couple of years out there, but uh, I started to get back into it once, like once I had a little bit of cash flow coming in, I started to remember, I was like, Oh yeah, you really love golf. I had legitimately forgot about it for a while. And I started getting back into it um, real hard leading up into like summer of 2014. And I was kind of at a weird crossroads in my life. Um, I just got out of a serious relationship. I really liked Chicago, uh, I was playing a lot, decent amount of golf, but it just wasn't very rewarding. I was just kind of like, why am I, you know, why do I work all week just to go play golf and then work again? I don't know. It just wasn't, it was, I needed something different. And I got an opportunity to, with my company to move to Amsterdam. Uh, it was supposed to be for 18 months and I took it. I mean, I'd never even been to Europe. I just decided, you know, I need to do something different with my life. I had this incredible opportunity. Um, all my friends were screaming at me like, of course you got to do it. Of course you got to do it. It's like, yeah, man, like you, it's easy to say that, but like, it's hard to be the one to make the decision. You know, you miss Thanksgivings, you miss, you know, bachelor parties, weddings and all this stuff. Um, but I did it. I took the leap and the golf clubs just collected dust in my bathtub in, I didn't have a lot of storage in Amsterdam. Uh, I played almost, almost no golf over there, but just started traveling the world and pursuing other things. And it's just so it's ironic that, you know, no laying up really started to take off during that time when I was really not playing golf, but uh, able to watch it at night. And uh, I don't know, it's such a ridiculous story that, you know, from just late night tweeting, you know, from almost midnight in Amsterdam time started to grow the popularity. And I was doing podcasts at, you know, two o'clock in the morning, sometimes if it was accommodating a player's schedule on the East coast in the States and, um, 
funny story. I had uh, the first player pod we ever did was Justin Thomas. And uh, I was like, yeah, man, like anytime works for me. Uh, I'm six hours ahead. I'm in, I'm in Amsterdam. He's like, okay, cool. Let's do 8 p.m. Eastern. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. That's cool. I could do that. So like, I tried to go to sleep before it, but I was so nervous. Like I didn't even sleep, you know, leading up to it and did an interview at two o'clock in the morning uh, that, you know, you could, it's funny to listen back at it now. It probably sounds pretty ridiculous because I was you know, in the middle of the night, but that's kind of how it was born. And then, you know, near the end, I started to realize again, remember like how much I loved golf and realized, you know, a short flight away was some of the best golf in the world. And that last year I was over there, it was like, oh my God, dude, I've had this at my doorstep and I haven't been taking advantage of it at all. But again, in line with what I wanted, I wanted to go do different things. I went to Egypt, I went to Nigeria, I went to Ukraine, I went anywhere that wasn't a golf place. Um, and I have no regrets about that. But near the end, it was kind of like, oh, that's right, you love it. And it was starting to take off in popularity. And it's, it was really only a few months before I left Amsterdam that I, we all kind of looked around. It was like, what if we made this a job? Like, could we ever make enough money that we could justify doing this? And um, it was the, the amount of money that we had coming in at that point to make the decision. It was absolutely foolish. It's insane to look back on, but it was like, why not just go for it? Like, why not try it and see what happens? You can, the worst advice anyone can ever give you is something I heard on repeat. It's like, oh, you could always go back to your other job if you want to. It was like, yeah, that's not what I want to hear right now. I want to actually go <laughs> for it. But um, that summer of 2017, before I moved home, I, I rented a car and drove around the UK for 38 straight days. And I played golf every single day, sometimes 36 a day. That's and the dream. Had, it was the actual dream. And I knew that was like, listen, I know people, we play a decent amount of golf, but like, we don't get to do that. I, I knew that was the chance of my life to do that. Um, I was getting ready to move back in with my parents, you know, to start the business. But it was like, before I do, I'm going to follow the European tour from, you know, the Scottish open to the Irish open to the British open, or I guess it was, it was uh, Irish to Scottish to British and play along the way and meet some people and see what we can get going. And it was the most rewarding and most fun time of my life. I'd find 25 pound Airbnbs that, you know, two hours before it was check-in time and stay with single moms and their kids and stuff around the UK. It was a weird experience, but it, I wouldn't change it for the world. And just, you know, I, I really learned to be on my own. And so that is a super, super, super long-winded uh, background on my golf life. And now it's something I live, eat and breathe every single day. So, what was like, was there ever really like sort of like that aha moment where you're like, you know, this can actually be like my life. I can make a career out of this. Well, what was so weird is while it was taking off, nothing was happening in person for me. Like I was again, I was in Amsterdam, like the, the PJ tour doesn't come over there. I was not meeting people in real life. And I, while I was kind of understanding the popularity of the online, you know, Twitter account, it was hard for me to understand the popularity of the podcast. I didn't realize our data measurement system was absolutely awful. And I didn't realize how many people were listening to it. And so it was kind of like this half in half out thing. And, and the second thing being, I had no idea what media exposure was worth. I mean, absolutely none. And I, I tell this story and it, it, uh, it starts with I mean, the very first, you know, Callaway approached us, right? And they said, they want, we want to sponsor the podcast. 
and we're getting together and, you know, for the rest of the year, this is in March of 2017 for the rest of the year, we want to sponsor the podcast. And we were like, looked around, like, is it crazy if we ask for $10,000? Like, is that way too much money? And we were like, I don't know, man, they're going to like laugh us out of the room. Like that's way too much money. And we went back and forth. We're Googling what rates are, all this stuff. We ended up going back to them for what we thought was it was not a lot more than that, but we thought it was astronomical. We thought they were going to laugh us out of the room. And the deal was done within 30 minutes, all via WhatsApp. And we were, we were like <laughs> kind of kind of ecstatic, but like also kind of like, did we just like really, really grossly undersell ourselves? And listen, that amount of money was not enough for one person to live off of. Now divide it by five people. It's really not enough. Uh, but that was the amount I quit my job over. And I said like, all right, I'm moving in with my parents. I won't have an income. Uh, I guess a lot, some of that income was allocated to me for basic life expenses. The rest of the guys kept their full-time jobs, but I was going to spend the rest of 2017 working on contracts for next year. And if we could reach a certain revenue goal, you know, we could find drum up some sponsors that would be willing to support us at this amount. Then Tron could quit his job. He could come on full-time we could have enough money to pay DJ Piehowski to come join us on board and you know, buy up a lot of his time. Then eventually Big Randy could come on, blah, blah, blah. And we, that's what I spent the remainder of that year doing. Just kept pounding out the content, but also just working up the phone lines for sponsors. And we had a few fall on our lap. We met the goals and we said, all right, we're going to do this. Like, I don't know if we're going to make money doing this, but like, it's really not why we're doing it. We never started this to have a business. We started it because it was a fun hobby. We are passionate about golf and that's why it worked. I mean, if we had gone from day one and said, all right, let's start a golf media podcast, social media, whatever you want to call it, it would not have worked. So we were, we were lucky in that regard. You guys obviously are probably making more than that now, but Neil is still working for Google, correct? Or, or he still has a full-time job, so he's not on board, right? No, he quit his job um, this uh, February 1st-ish of 2019. So he's been almost two years full-time now. Okay, okay. Because yeah. I thought, you know, he seems like he kind of goes back and forth between New York still or, or somewhere. It doesn't seem like he's, uh, you know, quite as full-time as you guys, but I didn't just didn't know what was going on there, but, uh, his physical locations a little confusing. Um, he yeah. did come, he comes down. He, he, I don't know where he lives now. Technically he, uh, lived <laughs> in Brooklyn and that was his plan. Even when he uh, quit his job and was full time, he stayed in Brooklyn. So uh, we, our agent Gideon Cohen, uh, he's with the Montag group. He's up in New York. There's a ton of just, contacts up in new york it's a good thing for us to be spread out a little bit across the country neil loves it there has a girlfriend there um but kind of comes down a decent amount to jacksonville but when things when covid went down in march he was down in jacksonville and when new york was like shutting down he's like i am not going back to that petri dish so he stayed in jacksonville all through june his girlfriend came down stayed with us and he went back up there for this summer played a lot of private golf do not believe what the, that he follows the strap lifestyle everywhere yeah. he goes. <laughs> That's what it seems like. And then uh, came back in October, uh, back to Jackson. He's going to be down here again for the winter. I'll tell you, living down in Jacks, the snowbirds do have it figured out. Like, and what he's got going right now with his balance and rotation of schedule, they've also really got something figured out. I am quite envious for, for their uh, ability to manage that. 
Yeah, so obviously the game of golf is in a really interesting spot right now. And then you guys are kind of like the perfect conduit to to analyze sort of that. Like we're in a really transitional phase right now with, um, you know, with Tiger kind of toward the end of his career, Phil's on the outs, and then, you know, this huge giant boom in distance. And, you know, there's all these calls for bifurcation and rollback. Where do you see the game going in these next three years in terms of that? I hope that um, golf does make some changes. It's hard because I think it's such a complicated topic. Distance in golf is a very, very, very complicated topic. We could talk about it for the next four hours and probably not fully unpack the impact that how far the ball go, how much it has on the game. Um, Cliff Notes version even if we bifurcate or, you know, people that say who cares about the top players in the game, top level in the game, it has a trickle down effect to a lot of things in golf. And with like real estate prices, land prices are not going to get cheaper in the United States. We want to make golf more affordable. We want to make it more accessible. Having the ball go really far is not helping any of those things. Um, it makes it harder to water golf courses. It makes it more expensive to buy more land, to put new tee boxes in, to make your course hospitable enough to, you know, challenge all types of players. It requires way more water and all those costs get passed down to the consumer in some way, whether it be membership dues, whether that be greens fees, public courses, it just, the effects are very, very long reaching. Um, USGA recently saying that, you know, they're basically looking at taking action for the first time on the distance the ball is going. Fred Ridley, the chairman of Augusta National saying, you know, we're at a bit of a crossroads waiting for an action step. Those two things, you you don't come out and say those two things and and have nothing happen. Something's going to happen. I don't know what it is. Uh, Like I said, it's very complicated. It's not an easy answer to say, just make the ball go less distance to, it has to do with spin rates. It has to do with driver head size. It has to do with so many different things. But if we want golf to be this booming sport that people, you know, seem to want, it's got to change in quite a few ways. And one of them is the ball just does not need to go nearly as far as people think it needs to go uh, for the game to be popular. Yeah, I think I think you brought up kind of an interesting point there. Like the issue between golf and sustainability is a real thing whether you agree with it or not because a lot of environmentalist lobby groups like they look at golf courses first in terms of like who's taking up the most real estate who's using up the most water and i think that's an issue that kind of gets overlooked because golf doesn't necessarily associate with that group of people but i think that's a real issue you're going to run into down the road with this distance boom well I definitely agree. And I usually don't lead with that because of exactly what you just said, that that message gets lost on a lot of the golf populace, which is unfortunate. Like I, so I don't lead with like, don't you care about the environment? Because honestly, a lot of people don't, I do. And I, I think there is an environmental, a huge environmental impact of the game. But if I say, you know, the way I said it earlier, the land cost and the water cost and what it, what has to go into, you know, what has to go into supporting a golf ball that goes this far is passed along directly to the consumer. Like that cost is going to hit you in some way. Yeah. So it, while it, the water impacts are of course considered for the environment, 
it's easier for people to digest being like, oh, it affects my wallet directly. Yeah, that let's dial this thing back a little bit. I'm not saying I've convinced, people aren't coming up to me in the street saying, sir, thank you for your point. You've changed my mind. The ball now <laughs> needs rolled back. But I think that people have a better chance of understanding that in that regard, more so than like, don't you care about the environment? Because I, I have a bad feeling we, we won't like the answer to that question. Agree. Yeah. Like, and also I think too, a lot of people, they, they compare and myself included, it's easy to compare what's happening in golf right now to what's happening in baseball, right? You see this increase in home runs, this in, increase in power, and it's done by the league. Like the league is really promoting this. They, they enjoy seeing this because it brings them ratings. You know, you're seeing that kind of in golf right now with this you know, younger generation of players who hit it 320 in the air. What do you have to say to the group of people that say, well, that's good for the game because it makes it more exciting. It makes the scores lower. You know, there, I think people can't get past that and understand why it's a bad thing. Yeah, and while I, I, I would disagree with that sentiment, but I'm not gonna tell others that they should agree with me. Like I, I, maybe that is the case. Maybe people do love tuning in and watching the ball go 320. I would say, is it that exciting when everyone's hitting it 320? Like it's, yeah. it's not. I don't find that exciting now. Am I sitting here? I can't with a straight face say to the, a casual fan, don't you really appreciate when a guy has to hit a great drive, thread the needle of this dog leg, whatever it is, and then draw a seven iron to a back left pin when the wind's coming off the left and the last three guys haven't been able to stop their ball back there. But if you watch it for an hour and a half and you realize how great that shot was, then that's exciting. I, I have a hard time convincing people of that. Now, mm -hmm. to me, that's super exciting. That's a test of golf and the, that balance being restored to – the highest level of that test of golf rather than being driver wedge. I just don't PJ tour golf is not entertaining enough. They're not steering enough into the entertainment product for it to be like this kind of almost simulation like entertainment. You know what I mean? Like yeah. Yeah. if it, if it's going to be just driver wedge, then that this sport's got to get so much weirder. Like they have got <laughs> to have people screaming in backswings. Like it's got to be like a home and away. You know what I mean? There is no, WWE element to how PJ tour golf is played out. So I'd rather see the game played out in a much more interesting way. Like the analogy I go back to, I am not a cricket fan, but there's a great little like 18 minute, whatever thing on this show on Netflix called explained where it explains the game of cricket and cricket is, you know, it's kind of a, a good parallel for golf they it's played over days at a time like by all objective measures it's an incredibly boring sport like the games are not usually close blah 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 what they did in cricket is created this thing this new sport almost called t20 which is a three-hour cricket match that is so different than what the a normal match is like and they steer into trades and drama and all these things and I, listen i'm not saying copy this directly into golf and we have everything solved but i'm saying it needs a lot more of that element of like, hey, how do we make this more exciting for fans? Because I'll, I'll peek behind the curtain on how the tour operates and how the major bodies operate. They don't think about the fans too often. Peter Costa oh, no. said it on our podcast, you know, this February. Like, they don't give a rat's ass about the fans. Like, if they draw a minimum number of people, if the sponsors are happy and if the players are getting paid, that's all that really matters. And the fan gets totally shut out. And that's what we try to be, like, the voice of the fan here to be like, hey – 
like our generation, we don't want to watch an hour of commercials when we sit down for a three hour broadcast. And that's what it is. 54 minutes of commercials in a three hour broadcast. It's not going to work. We're not going to stick around for this. Like I'm trying to get somebody's attention here. We got to come up with an alternative and they are laughing all the way to the bank because the advertisers keep buying up the spots. The players keep getting paid. And who are, what voice do we have in the room? Nobody's listening to us out here. Cause you know, they're, the money's still coming in. I think at a certain point, the long-term damage is going to be done and they're going to look around and be like, Whoa, we don't have anybody watching this, but until, you know, sadly, once that happens, the people that are in charge now will probably be, have moved on to other jobs and will probably not left the game in a better place than they found it. So that is extremely long-winded way of, of saying, like, golf's got a long ways to go. Um, there has been an extreme challenge that people seem to be just be forgetting about or not really take seriously from the Premier Golf League, which seeks to yes. uh, potentially strongly disrupt golf Um the arrogance that comes from the PGA tour and just being like, Oh no, we're fine. It's not going to happen. We squashed no. <laughs> that. I like, we're not, I don't want to like build too much buzz. I don't, I don't want to get like too much attention to it. Cause it's kind of flying under the radar right now and things are still happening. Yeah. Um, but it has the chance to kind of give us this fun sport that it would be worth following. Whereas look, I, I see, you know, our engagement when the RSM classic is on, it's not great. And you know, once the fall rolls around, people are not, having a tournament every week is not going to be how your, how your sport grows. Yeah. Like we actively chose not to do anything this week for RSM because like we were texting each other, like, do we want to do anything? We're like, no, let's just roll out the interviews. Like no one really cares. And that's the problem. There's so much saturation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But you alluded to it earlier. So you're probably in the same boat as myself and probably Sean as well. The game is definitely crying out for something like the PGL, regardless of where the money is coming from, which I know is much is a much seedier topic that we don't need to get you know, into. It's, it's not quite – they did such a – I, I want to say they did such a poor job with the rollout, but in reality, yeah. they were not trying to roll it out. Like there was th- – these rumors have been out here forever, and we were honestly getting ready to talk about it that week. It was a big buzz at the PGA show this year. We were getting ready to talk about it, and then Jeff Shackelford's report on the PGL came out, right? Yeah, And the info that came out was just not prepared. It wasn't prepared. Like they were not ready for people to start asking questions about it. And this narrative got formed that the Saudis were funding this whole thing, which is not necessarily the case. And they've, you know, there's been some developments on that front. They've diversified the money where it's coming from to the point where they're hardly even relying on Saudi money. They could do it without them, I think. And I think at this point they would love to do it without the Saudis, but I'm sure it's just more complicated than that. But like, it was seen as this corporate takeover of golf and that, that sounded icky to a lot of people, but I wanted to be like, get people's attention. Like, Hey, well, what do you think this is? What do you think the Valspar and you know, <laughs> the MasterCard Bay Hill invitational are and the blah, blah, blah. Like all of these things are, what do you think that is? Like that is a corporate takeover of golf. That, that's already happened. Like that, this is not a worse corporate takeover than what we currently have. And just seeing, you know, it's no secret we've gotten way into Formula One this year, but understanding mm-hmm. how that sport has created drama and steered into drama and how their model that would be followed in the PGL would closely mimic that, you know, with teams, with trades, with, you know, you know, relegation and all the things that come with, I mean, there's no secret that like basketball and football and baseball are more popular than golf because like, 
it's hard to follow individual sports. Like teams make yeah. things so different. Like it, you have trade rumors, you have, you know, free agency deals, you have, you know, relegation, like we talked about. It's just so much more interesting when you have dynamics added to other than like, yeah, this guy is a hall of famer because he wins 5% of the time. Like it, it's just a very, very, very different sport. If you start thinking of it, from a team aspect, which golf has just always been in the only reason we view it individually is that's how it's always been. But like, if it was all, it had always been teams, we wouldn't sit here and say, you know what we should do instead is have 72 holes of stroke play every week. And everyone's just on their own. Like if you were starting golf right now, like that's not how you would do things. Absolutely not. Yeah. And I think it's an interesting way to think about it. Like imagine if you had, you know, multiple teams. I mean, I'm sure this is kind of what the PGL is thinking about, but imagine if you have teams of say eight guys and it's like, you know, you get, you have to cycle through each guy and one guy hits a shot and then you can't use that guy until you use all the other seven guys. Like there's so many different routes you could go with this that would make it such a shit show, which is exactly what you want. Like you want the drama, you want, you want crazy stuff to happen and it's so difficult for that to happen on the PGA tour. You you're hoping for a tight finish where you, you get a playoff or you get a head to head battle at the end with tiger going up against Phil. And how often does that happen? Like almost never. Yeah. I mean, it's it, it just kind of sit around and hope for the best is, is not the, not the best way to drum up excitement. I wouldn't say um, it, it's just a, it's just amazing to me that, that they think this formula is so bulletproof that they do it every week, like 72 goals every week. And the yeah. Zurich is a team event. That's legit. The only difference in, in the entire year, like yeah. how can, and, and again, it's back to what we said though, like the money's coming in, like why I mess with the formula, the players are getting paid. Like, yeah, sure. We as fans would like to see something different, but like, what are they like? What do they owe us? They don't like, they can keep doing this, collecting the paychecks until we all, rally and don't watch any of it and even then like it's not i don't know i don't know how they keep selling these things i really don't because uh the eyeballs it's they don't lie when there's no tiger in the hunt the eyeballs it is a it is a tough scene i mean the pj's the pgl's model just seems so foolproof it you know branches out to everybody it branches out to the casual golf viewer who can relate more to you know like a team aspect and then and then it, um hits, you know, the golf tragic where it's like, they're going to go to like every nice course they possibly can. Like who doesn't want to see that? I hope they do. I think I still have some questions on where they'll go. Um, but the guys that are, in, the guys that are involved in this uh, have earned a little trust on our end. I think just, you know, they have a vision. They've worked on it for a long, long time. This didn't come up this February. This wasn't like, this thing is very, very, very far along. And it's very interesting how it's all going to play out right because it's going to be a weird domino effect either way and we kind of people that's what you know when brooks came out and spoke against it rory kind of spoke against it a little bit it kind of seemed like oh the domino effect like it's all gone like everyone's going to be gone but you know like, tiger hasn't spoken out against it and like phil definitely hasn't spoken out against it you know what oh, phil's definitely love? in for it they love money they love money yeah. and the how it is also going to potentially work is this opportunity might not be there for very long for a lot of these players. So they want to lure the, you know, both 
guys like Tiger and Phil, but also the top current players. And how do you lure them? They are planning to lure them with equity possibilities on these teams. If they drag their feet, if you wait a year, if you're, if you're Brooks Kepka, and you, know, you had this opportunity last year, are you going to have it next year? Your health is a concern. Your longevity might be a concern. Is it going to be there? So these guys are going to have good incentive to be like, I'm in. Let's do it right now because I don't know if in three years this, this, I'm going to be in this exact spot. That makes things interesting from a slippery slope perspective. Like, hey, us three, we're in. We're going to do this. We kind of need you. Like, who's going to have the principle to turn down a lot of money to play less golf for a lot less excitement? Like, that's when things are going to get very, very real. That sounds so cool to me. Like, it's just such an interesting idea. But I also want to get to... But wait, did, you did not have that reaction when it came out. Because I no, did. I bet no, you didn't. See what I, I mean? did not no. at all. And, and he, the way you guys talked about it, like, opened my mind up to it. Like, holy shit, there's so many different possibilities to this. And it's a legitimate possibility that you could get the best players in the world, like, fully on board for this. Which I did not think at all for one second. Yeah, I mean, it, it, uh, it's, it's nuts. There's so many layers to it. It really is. And just the fact that I, I guess I underrated how much these guys love money. Because, I mean, if you ask me, like, they've all made so much money that, like, how can you really care at a certain point? Some of these guys, how they keep going, playing, you know, week to week. I wonder how you spend this many weeks away from your family. But that's kind of the answer is like, wait, I get to play 22 weeks. I know exactly what my schedule is going to be. I get paid a guaranteed amount of money to go do it. Like, why the hell would I not do that? My sponsors are going to love this. If the ratings are better, I'm going to make more from my sponsors too. Like, where, stop me. Like, allegiance to the, to the PGA Tour is the only thing that's going to stop me from this? Like, I, well, I'm gone. Like, I am going to yeah, go yeah. do this. So, so I, I do want to get into quickly – you know, you guys have these, these series that you do specifically, I want to talk about Taurus sauce, strap, the trap draw, you know, all that stuff, but traveling with five guys on a golf trip with cameras, drones, microphones, and then you got things like Neil's antics, you, you know, you're in a foreign country. It must make for a lot of fun, but it's got to be super chaotic. There's got to be some crazy stories. I bet from these, these, what, this is your sixties season now uh Bandon. so I, i'm sure you guys have some crazy stories that even viewers haven't seen on camera you know there's not a ton honestly that gets left that we haven't caught on camera or that gets left on the cutting room floor um the we are very good at knowing the purpose of these trips is for content like would i rather go to ireland and play golf without cameras 100 percent is it still really fun to have a job where you go play golf and film it and somehow people watch the videos? Like, absolutely. But it does subtract at least a little bit from the vibe, just knowing you need, there's some stress that comes with knowing you have to get content out of it. You yeah. know, and it's stress with like, we film not every shot now, but we film so much more than we used to because enough moments happen. They're like somebody holes out from a bunker from 60 yards away and you weren't filming. And it's like, damn it that sucks so it adds a lot of work on the back end to go through all the footage it's more cost of hard drives it's it's more time consuming to move all the footage which may sound minor but it's definitely not um but if you if you i i would definitely say every year we've done it we get better like we just get better at the whole process and we've learned so much as we go and i mean we started out shooting these things on cell phones because 
we didn't want to, you know, to shoot our gigabytes to be too big of the footage. Whereas now our stuff is like, it was like two and a half terabytes. I think that we shot in Oregon, which I think we were like 20, 50 gigabytes for the first season we did or something like that. I mean, it's, <laughs> things have changed a lot. Um, it's so much fun. It's difficult, but like we've gotten efficient with it. We'll ask for a little help from the golf courses. Like, Hey, can you not have somebody tee off like within 20 minutes right after us? Cause we don't want to hold anyone up. We have to let some groups play through at times, you know, it lets us kind of get our bearings and not rush too much. But honestly we do a pretty, we play in just a little over four hours doing all that stuff. Um, it's tough. It's not easy, but we've gotten good at sharing the camera and knowing what we need to get and whatnot. And, uh, it's, it's obviously really, really, really fun. Um, sometimes, especially when you're removed from the editing process, it's so fun to see like what I'm like, Oh gosh, did we get anything good today? And then DJ gets in the lab, <laughs> yeah. stitches it together. And I'm like, dude, how did you do that, man? Like I was there that day and somehow you make it look eight times as more fun than it actually was yeah. even to film. And <laughs> it's amazing what he's capable of, what he's been able to do with, with that series and strapped. Like he's evolved so much in his three years with us and, I don't, I really don't know where we'd be without them. It's, it's a, it, it's a, it's a talent. It's an art. That's why I tell people like with video editing, I do some of it, but I do the stuff that's like pretty straightforward. My artistic expression ability is not great. It just, I'm not good at stitching like how the music flows with the interviews and narration into the audio of the clips and the mood and all that stuff like it takes a vision you don't just like sit down and start chopping it up it takes a vision and kind of like a a second brain to really stitch all that stuff out and that's what he does so 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 well and we're incredibly lucky to have him now yeah, we got now we got up his pay after i said all that so. yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i was going to say but you guys have totally like set a new standard i think with this this uh new season the Oregon season of Taurus sauce like the cinematic you know, shots that you guys got i mean it's it's like movie caliber stuff and i think it it turned it from like more of a oh, i don't want to say vlog style because that would kind of be a disservice to it but you know sort of in that style to now it's like this is borderline a documentary with like some funny stuff mixed in here because it is just on a totally different level now yeah and we I, we owe a lot to a guy named Ben Hotailing who people may know is some guy's backyard on Twitter. He's one of the guys that you know they built a seven hole par three course in uh, in some guy's backyard in uh, in Kansas City. Uh, he We've kind of brought him on to be Neil calls him the St. Rapio intern, um, but he's approaching more of a full-time position with us, but like for the first time, we had a hired hand with us uh, to help with band with filming and I'm usually DJ's, you know, sous chef when it comes to filming and data storage and all that stuff. And he basically took over the job that I usually do. And I was able to like enjoy a trip for uh, not the first time, but in a totally different way. Like the stress was so much less for me this past trip. And he's been, he, he had, a, he brought a great camera of his own that we ended up using for a lot of it, which kind of taught us like our cameras are kind of outdated. And to your point, like, yeah, it, we've always viewed like, the video quality stuff, it can be obtrusive to good content. And yeah, like it's hard to get it right. And like, if you spend so much time getting the elements of the video, right, it loses a little bit of edge in some ways. Like some of the shakiest footage is, is our funniest clips. Exactly. And yeah, you know, yeah. when you got to stop and you got a tripod and you got to do all that stuff, you lose a lot of flow. Um, so I think the next season is going to be an interesting, like trying to restore a little bit of that balance of like, 
the fun zany stuff with the beautiful shots and all that stuff, which um, we want each season to be different. That's been a goal. And if you look at each one, there's a different element to each one. You know, some people are like, man, I missed this. Like, well, yeah, if you look closely, like each one has been different, you know, we've kind of upped the storytelling lever in a diff- in particular season. Whereas like, California was more about us traveling in an RV and like Ireland is telling the story of a country's love for golf. And the Carolinas was a bit more like about us again. And then Oregon is like the beauty of uh, one of the most beautiful golf States in the country and a resort that is like golf heaven. Like that's what the story is. And seven is going to be different. We don't know what it's going to be like, but it's going to be different. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing how the series continues to evolve. Can we ask where number seven is going to be? You can. I, we honestly don't have an answer. Um, season six was not supposed to be Oregon. It was supposed to be somewhere international. Um, we'd love to do that in 21, but honestly, we'll probably end up pushing that to 22 just, just so we're not world. having to just make changes to plans yet again. Um, it's not that easy to stitch together an international trip. Um, so having a clear runway and we'll know exactly how things are is a lot more appealing to do that. Um, so we're throwing out some domestic options. Um, I can't say for, I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to get anyone in a bidding war against each other on, you know, trying to one up each other on, Oh, you got to come to my state, all that. We've got two leading locations. Um, we, and, and a third region really, um, that we're, that we're considering, but we have not decided. So, so if it's, it's cool with you. We got like a couple rapid fire questions. Sure. We're just going to run through, um, you know, whatever pops in your mind first. Sure. All right. So what's your lowest round ever? My lowest round ever is 64. Um, it was at Tim Aquana from the blue tees, the member tees, 6,500 yards. Um, my best round there from the back tees was a 66 that I had this summer. Um, and I sold my soul for that round. I have not broken par since that round. So that was it. I'm, <laughs> it's all downhill since then, but that's my, it's a, a two answer. Uh, I think that 66 is probably my best round ever though. Technically not my lowest. What's your favorite tourist off season? My favorite is definitely the current one, Oregon. Um, it's the one probably I, I think I'm the most proud of, but my runner up would be, would be Ireland. Um, I thought that was so much fun. So cool. And, a lot of those places in Ireland I'd been to before and I was, it was like a dream of mine to get the whole crew to go back and document it properly. I try to tell the story on the podcast as many times as possible, but like to have that experience and then know that it's a story that's definitely worth telling, getting everyone abroad to tell the story and to do it and to have it all come to fruition. That's, that's probably my favorite before this most recent one. So I've been known to shit on Rory heavily for his first round major blowups. What's worse, the McRib first round major blowups or pulling a Nicarita? Um, so uh, bad news for content. Like Icarito might be dead because I know, oh, no. it is after him going under par at the Neil has been party. playing really good golf for the majority of this year. Yeah. Finally did break through under par. Um and it, he's really just scratching the surface. He's figured the driver out, and I've been just like screaming at him like he he doesn't take my lessons very well um he's he's a he's a little bit stubborn i don't mind saying it but like what's funny is i'll tell him something for 
legit like a year and a half. And then when we were in Oregon, he's like, you know, Max Homa was telling me a lot about like being below the hole. And I was, are you <laughs> kidding me, dude? Like, <laughs> I have been trying to tell you this for literally years. And the other thing I always told him was like, dude, you put way too much emphasis on your, on the result of your tee shot. Like you just nuke four shots a round, pumping one OB, hitting the ball. Like you just live and die by your driver. Like if you dial it back to a reliable shot, the, the game of golf is going to open up to you. And he has, like he is, he has turned into, he's always been the longest of our group, but now he's the best driver of our group. Like I, I would beat him in strokes game driving before this recent resurgence because he would cost himself with so many tee shots. But now he's like, hits it further than me and straighter than me. That's why I was, we're playing a uh, alternate shot event in a couple of weeks here down in Florida. And like, I'm excited to play with him. Like he doesn't scare yeah. me at all. Like I, I, everyone's like, Oh, he's going to put you in so many hard spots. I'm like, dude, I might be the one putting him in bad spots. Like who knows? <laughs> like he really hits the ball really, really good when he is on his, his ceiling is it's, it's enormous. Tron has foolishly said on the Nest podcast that Neil's best golf is five to six shots better than my best golf. So apparently, <laughs> apparently Neil has a 58 in him, which we're waiting to see. Yeah. You know, the 170 he shot uh, is, you know, is, is quite admirable. But uh, no, Neil's Icarito might truly be dead. He knows he's learned a lot about course management. It might be to the detriment of the content, but the mega yeah. bonus is coming very soon. Oh, I know. So Sully. What's the strangest thing you keep in your golf bag? Um, probably, well, it might be like the 15 gloves that I keep on my bag during the summer just because it, it's super hot down here and I need to change one out pretty much Glandular every hole. Issues, yeah. Um, I keep a tour striker ball, which looks very silly. It's like a little blow-up ball that you put in between your elbows to do drills on the range. Sean and, and then, I both have those. Yeah, I carry um, a lot of like sugar-free mm. almond butter. So... Like I've tried to lose some weight and I've been somewhat successful, but like I, if I need a snack, it's gotta be like real healthy filling and it's gotta have protein. So people look at me weird and I'll rip open like three packs of almond butter during a round of golf, but that's probably the weirdest thing I keep in there. What's the best golf state in the country? We talked about this after we left Oregon. Um, in totality, it's probably California. If you include private golf, you know, if you could get on any golf course you wanted to probably either California, maybe New York. Um, but accessibility, Oregon, I mean, Bandon really takes things to that level. It's the only place you can really play true links golf in the United States and you can do it at five of the best golf courses in the world out there. And some of the other offerings, Sylvie's Valley ranch that the end of the season, I hope it blows people's minds. Like Sylvie's Valley ranch blew my mind. It, it was one of the coolest golf experiences I've ever had. Um, amazing, amazing match play courses. There's a dramatic end to this season that I've no problem teasing. Um, Oregon, the depth at, of Oregon is extremely impressive, and I, I'm going to go with that one. Here's a hypothetical. You have a putt to win the Masters, but if you miss, you have to quit golf forever. What's the, putt, what's the length that you're comfortable with? Putt to win the Masters, have to quit as. Whoa, that is a good one. Um, I think anywhere from six feet and in, I think I can make it. Um, wow, that's so bold. Going with a bold. Footer. I mean, I, I've, I've said that's where my limit would be. Like, if you yeah, propose yeah. that to me, I'd yeah, probably fair like, enough. give me the three footer, of course. But, yeah. like, um, 
that's one of the things that I've improved on the most is my putting. I'm actually extremely, extremely confident with putting now. Um, yeah, it seems like it. And it, it, uh, I don't know, it, it, it comes and goes, but like, there's a reason I use a really weird old putter that has a horribly worn grip. Like I've, I'm in love with it and it's been great to me at a lot of stops and I'll have some of those like 64s and 66s have not been the best ball striking days. They like from you get me on the green and it's going in like kind of freaky, good putting. Uh, it is definitely not always there, but I have, you know, there, there's some rounds where I just feel like I feel like Steph Curry from deep out there. Yeah. Listen, the Odyssey number seven is the greatest putter of all time. And there's no debate about it. They tried to, they don't sell the one that I have anymore. They don't make it anymore. So they tried to Brad Faxon said I needed a longer putter. So they tried to create something that was similar to it and extended a little bit, but it wasn't the same. Like it's, it's, it's my, it's my baby. I'll flirt with some other ones here and there, but I always go back to my baby. I'm excited for the white hot ones. The OGs coming out next year. They got a lot, a lot of good stuff coming, man. Lastly, what is the best course you've ever played? You've played a lot of good ones. So two, I have to answer two of these. Um, Terry Eady in New Zealand is like my favorite yeah. modern course I've ever played. It's stunning. It's so much fun. It's all the fun elements of golf you could ever want. Um, it is most idyllic setting I think I've ever seen in golf. Um, but my favorite, I guess my favorite non-modern course is the old course at St. Andrews. Um, you can take all the history away from it and it would still be my favorite. It's so freaking fun to chart yourself around those bunkers. Like it took having a really good caddy there to teach me a lot about angles and how to play the course. And, you know, I remember this one shot I had, it was, I had 156 into, I think the 16th hole. And I was like, okay, give me the nine iron. And he's like, no, just hit a shot. Hit your 118 shot. It's like, what? He's like, yeah, it's going to land down in this bowl. It's going to disappear for a while and it's going to bound up there and you'll be 10 feet short of the hole. And I was like, all right, dude. So I pull a gap wedge, hit it. Ball disappears for a while and emerges like 10 feet from the hole. And I was just like glowing brain. <laughs> oh my God. I would have flown the green. I would have played that horribly. I did not really understand that route until you said that. And now I could, I could go back through the golf course and be like, Oh my God, I was supposed to play this this way. And that's golf to me. Like that's where it gets fun. You don't worry about your swing. You like play to targets, let contours and wind do things with your ball to help you out. And that's where I realized that. And that place is the best kind of experience of all those things in one. So Solly, I, we got to let you go. I know that you're conducting a podcast in about an hour. We can't thank you enough for the time. You're incredibly generous. So absolutely. Once again, thank Enjoy you guys. so much. Yep. Yeah, best we really appreciate everything. It. Thanks for having me on. Cheers. I hit a chili dip. It was off the, it was off the hosel. I mean, Cameron Davis is a joke. Mike, you got any yeah. takes on the e-golf pro tour? You already have iron <laughs> covers. You already look like a giant <laughs> pussy. I don't care. I honestly don't give a shit. Strength? He could be six feet under at this point, whoever WD. I didn't watch a single <clears throat> bit of it, but I'm going to chirp at the Fairmont St. Andrews because of the name. Yeah, Paul Tesori. Paul Tesori, friend of the pod. Neiman, friend of the pod. Friend of the pod. Yeah. Friend so, of the pod on Betsy. Terrell Haddon, are you kidding me? And there's a raccoon, no joke, like 20 feet away from me. <laughs> Florida. Say Florida, I'm hanging. Florida. No! You can't yeah. say Florida!